and pray, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are again grateful for you. Grateful for all that you you provide us, all that you give us, especially the the salvation you brought us through through your Son's death. Pray that you would bring that in the forefront of our minds and hearts this morning. And pray as we just open up different portions of your Word that we would grow in our knowledge of it, that we would grow in our love for it, that you would change our our affections to to value and and love and freely submit to the truth contained in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, we are starting a new Sunday School series, which is always very exciting for me, and hopefully y'all. I've been working on the content for the series for quite a while, um, and it's been one area of theology that I tend to just keep coming back to. It just interests me quite a bit, which is probably why we're doing it. Um, and so this series will be on the topic of evangelism, evangelism, and evangelism generally, but with a specific emphasis on personal evangelism, or or the proclamation of the gospel that we do in our day-to-day lives. And Lord willing, this will take us through the the new year of our adult Sunday school class, so over the next I had this written out. I think there's seven more meetings until January. Seven? Well, there's holidays. So, yes. <laughs> I should have had this written out. Okay. There's a, there's a number of meetings left, and this is going to carry us through the new year. I'm going to introduce the books I'm using. So we're not using one particular text. Um, unfortunately for you guys, because you can't follow along. I'm going to be using a, a, these three texts primarily. So the first is a book called Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus by Max Stiles, and this is from the Nine Mark series. Um, this focuses mostly on evangelism and the relationship to the, to the local church. I see someone writing down. You can also just come up afterwards and take a picture, whatever you want to do. Um, this is probably the most influential book, one of the most influential books that I've ever read in my life. And I'm going to be, I almost just wanted to just read this book cover to cover in this, this time. Um, so basically, I'm going to be um, using this one quite a bit. It's by J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer is called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Extremely, extremely important book. Um, so please read it if you haven't. But you're going to be getting pretty much the whole book in this series. And finally is a sort of more of a textbook. It's called Invitation to Evangelism. Sharing the Gospel with Compassion and Conviction. So Invitation to Evangelism by Timothy I looked this up. Timothy Buker. That's what it is. Buker. It's B-E-O-U. B-E-O-U. Whenever there's three vowels, I get flustered. Timothy Buker. Um, he was a professor of mine, so I should know that. But this is, I'm going to be using this quite a bit, too. It's more of a textbook on evangelism. So those are the three books. Um, and each lesson will be taken from different books throughout. 
So over the next couple of months, we're going to think about topics, the topic of evangelism, topics related to evangelism. We're going to think about, um, uh, we're going to think about the, the history of evangelism in the church, evangelism and the sovereignty of God, how these two relate to each other, how they fuel one another, evangelism in the local church, what's the relationship between our personal evangelism with our collective witness as a body of Christ. Um, and perhaps hopefully we'll get some practical helps we can give each other in our evangelism efforts as we proclaim the gospel to the lost in our lives. But first, I thought it would be good for us today to think of the question, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? Because I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear the word of evangelism, some particular things come to my mind, and not necessarily my favorite things. So I think of, when I hear the word of evangelism, I think of the tradition of altar calls in many evangelical churches in this nation, specifically in, in the South, where, where the pastor, after his sermon, invites the lost in the audience to come forward to the altar to, to say a prayer and receive salvation. And sometimes they're even um, baptized at that moment or, or entered into the church. Maybe you've experienced something like this in your, in your past. I think the, the New Age way of doing this, it's a little different, but this is something I'm far more accustomed to in, in churches I've had visited in the past. But it's, it's a, a turning down of the lights very low and... Maybe there's a, a fog machine to create a good atmosphere, and there's this very emotional music being played while the pastor prays and pleads for um, the salvation of the lost that are in the presence there. Um, or maybe when you hear the word evangelism, you think of tent revivals that, again, were very popular in this nation in the 19th and 20th centuries, or the, the crusade ministry of Billy Graham. Both of these center around an, an evangelistic meeting where the sole purpose of the meeting is to, to plead and convince the lost to come to faith in Christ. Now, I'm, make, I'm not making any value judgments of, yet on whether these things are, are right or wrong or wise or unwise. And I do think some practices are not as wise as others. While there are others, I think there is some great benefit in in some of these practices. But we'll get into that throughout the study. But I think, at least for me, when I hear the word evangelism, and these, these practices come into, my, come into my mind, something bad happens, at least for me. And that is I associate many modern practices of evangelism in the American church with emotional manipulation to get results. Emotional ma manipulation to, with the desire to get results, to get more numbers, to give a, a better report to denominational leaders or more conversions, more baptisms. And something about that, that, that whole enterprise, feels off to me. As if the, the result of evangelism is more important than the faithfulness to evangelize. And what ended up happening to me and this is my personal story. But what ended up happening to me is 
in regards to evangelism is that I began to, if you were to ask me, I might not have said this, but I grew a disdain towards evangelism, to the topic of evangelism in general. Because I thought it was because of these corrupting, unhelpful practices that were, that were so widely practiced in conservative evangelical churches. I thought that was what evangelism was. But I've since come to realize my issue is not and should not have ever been with evangelism itself. Evangelism, as we're hopefully going to see, is a biblical practice, a New Testament practice that is expected of all believers in Christ to engage in. And so one of my main goals throughout the series is to set before us a a positive vision, a positive vision of what biblical evangelism is, especially set in contrast to some of these, what I would say are extra-biblical practices of evangelism. And hopefully show it's not as difficult or or manipulative as some of these modern practices of evangelism would, would tell us or show us. But first, we need to define what I mean when I say the word evangelism throughout the series. So that's the purpose of our study today. Evangelism. When I say this word, what do I mean? So I'm going to provide a definition. I'll say it a couple times. We're also going to go through it today. But if you want to write this down. Evangelism is the proclamation and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say that part over again. Evangelism is the proclamation and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to lost people for the purpose of persuading them to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. We'll do some more. Evangelism is the proclamation and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost for the purpose of persuading them to trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. Again, we'll, we'll go through each part of that, that definition. If you didn't get it, to recite it back to me during the test. But <laughs> and so with this definition, it, it may be, at least I find it helpful to initially contrast it with what I would argue evangelism is not. What evangelism, evangelism is not. So first... Evangelism is not the mere presence or actions of a Christian. Evangelism is not the mere presence or actions of a, Christ, of a Christian in the world. So maybe you've heard the sentiment, I'm going to witness to somebody with my life. I'm going to, to let my life do the talking. This kind of sentiment. Or the quote I used in the, the sermon a couple weeks back. Right, it's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, but Dennis Cates, I'm looking at, he's not looking at me. He sent something that said it's not actually St. Francis said this, but it's still a very popular quote, um, and it is, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Have you heard this? Very common, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Or, and I've heard a, a, a helpful, it's kind of a pithy response to this, would be saying, that's like saying, feed the hungry at all times, if necessary, use food. Right? It, it's nonsensical. Our lives, our ethics, our virtues, our good works are not the gospel. 
The gospel is a series of truth claims. And the proclamation of the gospel then necessarily entails using words to communicate those truth claims. And the result of viewing evangelism as solely living a faithful life or living a virtuous life or displaying our good works to others is that our neighbors might think we're good people or even that we're religious people or even that we're, we're Christian people as they see that Christianity and the church is a big deal to us and they see that our lives are changed and that we live moral lives. But they won't, lo- they won't know, at least through our relationship with them, if we don't share the gospel with words. They won't know that only through faith and repentance in Christ that they can be saved from their sin. Which, when, when we stop to think about it, that's actually really tragic and sad that that would be the case. Now, that's not to say that our actions are, are unimportant. It does hurt very much so. It hurts our credibility. It hurts our witness if we are living in sin, especially public, outward sin, um, and proclaiming the gospel of Christ that, that is not good or for very faithful to share the gospel, to be proclaiming the gospel with our words, but our personal life is a mess, or, or we just act like jerks, we're just mean, right? That is not good for our witness. So our actions and works do matter. They do matter a great deal, but they're not the ultimate thing. Now, another thing evangelism is not, and I've encountered some Christians who operate this way, well-meaning Christians, I would say, um, but evangelism is not what Timothy Bucher calls spiritual mugging. I really like that phrase. It's not spiritual mugging. And by this he means when people browbeat or badger or even sometimes intimidate others for the gospel or, or in their gospel presentation. I think this might be more common in some other Christian traditions than the Reformed tradition, but I'm sure it's there still. But evangelism doesn't mean we have to, to pester and have unwanted conversations with people. So, so door-to-door evangelism sometimes can lead to this, although I've seen door-to-door evangelism work very well, that's done well, doesn't necessitate this mindset. But really the principle here is that wise evangelism knows when to let someone walk away. A wise practice of evangelism knows when to let someone walk away, And we can do this when we rest in God's sovereignty, as we'll see throughout the study. Only God can change hearts. Only God can change hearts, which means we don't need to badger or pester or be an annoyance to someone until they they make that decision for Christ. In fact, many times that kind of strategy will, will... unfortunately, turn people off to the, to the gospel message as they think it, we, we have weird and, and strange social behavior, which is another important component of, of wise evangelism. It's essentially just knowing proper boundaries in a given culture um, is, is a wise practice. Another thing our definition of evangelism should, and, and hopefully mind does guard against is that the, the, the results of evangelism should not be in the definition of evangelism. The results of the evangelism should not be in the, the definition of evangelism. 
So this may sound like a subtle difference, but, but J.I. Packer has a really helpful section in his book um, where he criticizes his own tradition, his own denomination's definition of evangelism, so the Anglican Church, because of a clause they put in there. So in that statement they say, to evangelize is to present Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, that men shall come. That men shall come. And so Packer takes great issue with that phrase, men shall come, right? Men shall come to have saving faith in Christ. And what Packer points out is that this language defines evangelism in terms of an effect achieved in the lives of others. So Packer's concern, and what I think our concern should be, is that we shouldn't define evangelism in a way that, that gives the impressions that, that the essence of evangelism, that what makes evangelism evangelism, is producing converts. There is always a tendency, if you read any uh, evangelism literature, which I've read quite a bit, right? There's just always this tendency in some to focus on the results or even say that the results of conversion are, makes up the essence of what evangelism is. But we know God handles the results. And God is the one who saves. Evangelism then is our, our faithfulness to proclaim and teach the truth of the gospel and so I think we, we, we need to be on guard. We, we, we can't conflate these two in our definition because if we do, if we do that, we run the danger of, of burdening people, of burdening ourselves by implying that if someone has no results in their evangelism or if they, if they don't see conversions through their proclamation of the gospel, then they aren't actually evangelizing or that there's, there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with their practice which isn't necessarily the case. Again, Packer is helpful here. He writes, It's true that every evangelist's aim is to convert, but the question whether or not one is evangelizing cannot be settled simply by asking whether one has had conversions. One helpful way to think about this is just think about some of the testimonies of our missionaries throughout church history. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of books written about missionaries, about the missionaries who labored for years and years and years and didn't have any converts. But there's testimony throughout the church that this has been the case for many a faithful missionary who evangelize year after year after year with no converts. Should we conclude then that they never evangelized? Maybe. That could be the case. But I think it's not always the case. And I think it's important that we could say that, that there is a faithful evangelism that could lead to no conversion, which I think ties into our theology of conversion, which we're going to talk about again in future weeks. So evangelism is our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel, not our ability to convert. So those are just a few examples of what I think evangelism is not or some practices we should be aware of to be on guard against as we think about evangelism. Do you guys have any ideas? Well, that's exactly what he says in his, yes. But that's, he said, we could just change one word and this will be okay in his mind. So you're thinking just like Packer, which is good. <laughs> Oh, we're going to get to this. We're going to get to this today, so you'll be ready. 
Paul does talk about persuading, which is what we're going to talk about, Paul talking about persuading. Thank you, Marty, yes. It's not my idea. <laughs> I, I, I think we're going to answer your question definitely by the end of the series, but there is going to be... Let me see how I'll try to answer this. Yeah. Yeah. Let me think about Rob's question more. That's what, one of the things, I'm, for whatever reason, Billy Graham's coming into my mind. Um, so I was a Southern Baptist and educated as a Southern Baptist. And like part of your Southern Baptist edu- education is indoctrination of Billy Graham. So I just know a lot about him because he's, he's our hero or was our hero. Um, but he, one of the things I preach about him is in his crusades, there was, he partnered with all the local churches, not all the local churches, but the local churches in those cities to when people had made their profession they would immediately get connected to a local church. So I do think practices like that are wise. Um, but I think you would also say it is possible that someone would be converted through the proclamation of the gospel. They receive that message. They become a Christian. They're saved. They're born again. And there's some time. They might not have a relationship with that person. There's some time before they enter into the church proper, right, or, or into a local church. Um, so I don't know if I would one-to-one equate it's not evangelism unless they become a part of a church, although I do think it's extremely important. Um, I'm going to move us on because we have a lot to get through. Um, okay, let's spend some time going through the, the definition I provided, and then we're going to get to Paul, who's, who's the best. So just thinking um, of the word origin, evangelism comes from the Greek word that, that we translate as good news. Or gospel. So evangelism is, is the proclamation or, or the, the communication of good news. And we would say the good news as Christians because we, we, this is the ultimate good news. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Packer says evangelism is a work of, a communication, of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners. I like this idea of a mouthpiece for God's message. It's, it isn't our, our gospel we're proclaiming. It's not our message we're proclaiming, but the good news of Jesus Christ, of God's great plan of salvation to save a people for himself. Now to, to my definition of evangelism, let's break it down a little bit more. So the first component of the definition is that evangelism is the proclamation and teaching of the gospel. It's the proclamation and teaching Again, this reiterates the truth we've seen, that there's, there's no evangelism without the communication of words, without the communication of ideas, of phrases. And so by teaching, I mean the communication of ideas to convey some truth or, or some message to help us grow in our understanding of something. Right? This, and I think this, this makes sense. We're unable to figure out a way of salvation of being made right with God, we're unable to do that on our own. We, we have to be, something has to be communicated to us, something has to be taught to us. So we can think of this, I think, in some more theological categories. General revelation, that is the, the revelation that, of God that is not in Scripture, but what we see in creation and nature, 
that revelation is not sufficient for our salvation, meaning we need special revelation from God to be saved. And that revelation, that special revelation, comes to us through his word, which reveals to us God's eternal plan of salvation, which is communicated to us through the teaching of human agents. And so we can think of the Bible then as a book of teaching. The Bible is a book of teaching, a book communicating God's plan of salvation. So teaching the gospel is is a necessary component of evangelism. And so one distinction, when I say teaching, I'm not... It's not the ability necessarily to get up in front of people and explain all the finer points of doctrine or something like that, although although that is teaching. But more fundamentally, teaching is simply communicating the truth of Scripture accurately. Communicating the truth of Scripture accurately. And we must teach what God's Word says before someone before anyone can become a a Christian. They must know the truth, and to know the truth, they must be taught the truth. So we can say that teaching, communicating truth, is how we proclaim the gospel. Teaching is how we proclaim the gospel to the lost. Now, second aspect of the definition, we are to teach and proclaim what? A, A... specific message, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is it we are to teach those that don't know Christ as Savior? Again, we're not free to teach anything in the world. It would do no good to teach math or communicate ideas about biology or even a generic truth about God that is true in our evangelism efforts because we are to teach and proclaim the gospel, the gospel message. Packer is again helpful here. He writes, the, evangel- the evangelistic message is the gospel of Christ and Him crucified, the message of man's sin and God's grace, of human guilt and divine forgiveness, of new birth and new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, we, we proclaim and we teach a very specific message of the good news of Jesus Christ coming into the world to save the lost. And Packer points out that this gospel message we proclaim should have, I don't know if this is comprehensive, but it should have four components, four components to our gospel message. So first, the gospel is a message about God. The gospel is a message about God. It tells us who God is, what what his character is, what his standards of righteousness are, and what he requires of us as his creatures. So we can see that we we owe God our, our full allegiance and very existence to him. So God being the, the creator and sustainer and ruler over all is, is a foundational block for us in our understanding of the gospel. In that he's completely just and has a holy standard that we must, as his creature, we must live in obedience to. We must live in full allegiance to. Thus, Packer can say that the gospel starts by teaching us that we, as creatures, are absolutely dependent on God. And that he, as creator, has an absolute claim on us. 
So with this foundation, we can then understand what sin is, or a better idea of what sin is. A rebellion against God's good and righteous, rightful rule over us. Which leads to the the second necessary aspect of the gospel. So Packer's second necessary aspect of the gospel is that the gospel is a message about sin. It's a message about sin. The gospel tells us how we have fallen short of God's standard, how we, how we become guilty because of our, our own sinful actions, our own wickedness inherent in us, how we are, are what the scriptures would say, we are filthy and, and helpless in our state of sin. And probably most importantly, we now, each of us, because, because of our sin, stand under the wrath of God because of our transgression against God's righteous standard, or you could say against God's law, meaning we deserve the punishment of hell. We deserve the wrath of God, the punishment of hell because of our sin against our maker. Next, or third, Packer argues that the gospel is a message about Christ. The gospel is a message about Christ. Pecker writes, Christ is the Son of God incarnate. Christ is the Lamb of God who died for sin. Christ is the risen Lord. Christ is the perfect Savior. And Packer makes two, I think, helpful points for us about Jesus that I think are important. First is that we can't present Christ as we're proclaiming the gospel. So in our understanding of the gospel, we can't understand Christ or proclaim Christ divorced from his saving work. So we can't present Christ divorced from his saving work, which is just pushing back against the idea that we can't just present Christ the man or Christ the teacher without teaching on the doctrines about him and about his death, specifically the doctrines related to his saving work on the cross. So you could say doctrines on atonement. We must, that's a necessary aspect of the gospel are the doctrines on atonement. To preach preach Christ is to preach Christ crucified. Crucified for the sins of his people. And at the same time, Packer argues in his second point that we must not present the saving work of Christ apart from his person. Apart, apart from Christ the man, meaning the, the opposite of the first point. We can't just solely focus in on the, our teaching of the gospel, on the atonement that Christ has won, but also that we are to trust and put our faith in him, in the person, in, in the man Jesus, the God-man. Acts 16.31. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's very simple, but really profound. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So to say this simply, we are to teach the gospel message that proclaims both the person and the work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. Final aspect of the gospel message is that the gospel is a a summons to faith and repentance. The gospel is a summons to faith and repentance. Meaning the gospel, really by necessity, the necessity of the content of the truth contained in it, the gospel by necessity requires a summons by God to, to repent and believe. 
meaning the teaching and message of the gospel concludes with a response to the gospel, according to Packard. There must be a response by all the gospel is being proclaimed to, either either embracing it or a rejection of it. There is no neutrality, though. There's the gospel, by virtue of what it is, demands a response. So in summary, the, the message we are to teach, the message we are to proclaim is the good news, the gospel, which includes our teaching on God, His righteous character and nature, our teaching on sin and our transgression against God and His perfect law, and the teaching of the, of the person and saving work of Jesus Christ who died for sin, and then a, a call for a response for each hearer of the gospel to repent of sin and trust fully in Christ for salvation. So this is the gospel, a, a one, one explanation of the gospel that we are to proclaim in our evangelism. So the last uh, portion of our definition I want to look at is, is our purpose of evangelism. We teach the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost for the purpose of persuading. For the purpose of persuading. So our purpose or aim in our gospel proclamation and teaching is to bring God glory by persuading the lost to trust in Him. By, by persuading the lost to trust in Him. Now, our purpose in persuading the lost is also motivated, I think, by our, our love for neighbor. Packer writes that the wish to win the lost for Christ should be, and indeed is the natural, spontaneous outflow of love in the heart of everyone who's been born again. So Packer's going as far to say is that, that our evangelism is just the spontaneous outflow. It's what is normal to the born-again Christian because of our love for the lost, our love for the neighbor. So when we see our lost neighbor's eternal need of Christ, it should move us to proclaim and persuade them of the truth of the gospel message. And in some ways, this should be our, our natural response in Christ. For those that are, are perishing in unbelief, around us. And this ties again to the, to the last part of the definition I want to look at, which is to persuade the lost to trust in Christ. To persuade the lost to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So our, our love for the lost and our goal or purpose in evangelism to proclaim the gospel to the lost leads us to, to persuade others of the truth of the gospel. And so our purpose really is to teach the gospel in our communication of the gospel, to teach the gospel in such a way to non-believers as to persuade them to convert. To persuade them to convert to become followers of Christ. This word persuade is a biblical word, which Marty pointed out for us. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5.11. This is a very important verse. It really shaped my, my view of an understanding of evangelism. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We persuade others. So that word persuade is very helpful. We need to distinguish between 
persuasion or, or to persuade is not to the same as to manipulate others. This is where some, I think, modern practices of evangelism maybe go too far in their understanding. Maybe rub me the wrong way. Where there is a seeming manipulation of emotions or, or other things, but there's, there's, there's no need to manipulate if we understand conversion doesn't come from our hands. Which we're going to talk about, again, conversion more in future weeks. But, but a proper understanding of conversion is really necessary for our understanding of persuasion. Of persuasion. We don't need tricks or gimmicks or, or manipulative tactics in evangelism. But we do need to persuade, to use our words persuasively as we communicate the truth of the gospel to, to persuade the, the, the lost to convert to trust in Christ. And I'm arguing this because I think this is the model we see in the New Testament. This is the model we see with the Apostle Paul. A teaching of the gospel with a specific emphasis on persuading others to repent. A communication of the gospel with a specific emphasis on persuading others to have faith in Christ. So that's, that's the definition. A little more explained. See if y'all have, y'all that did have questions, any questions, comments, concerns, blasphemies? I think so, right? Uh, the call is not for us to be, or that we need to have the best rhetoric or the best ability to communicate or the best, the newest, I don't know, <laughs> persuasive speech, what Paul says, right? But in our communication of the gospel, there, I think it, for Paul, which we're going to see here in a minute, it's rooted in his love for the Gentiles, his love for the lost, that leads him to communicate the gospel truth in a persuasive way. Like Meaning he's trying, to com- he's trying to convince the lost that this is the good news that they should repent of and, or the repent of their sin, not repent of the good news, and embrace Bobby. And that word is, is, I think it's constantly. Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah. I think when Packer's using person, I think he's talking about his, his life ministry and what we see in scripture. So his, his perfect obedience to the law. But then you have to have that to then talk about the atonement. Right? So you can't just go straight to the cross without speaking of the, the person of Christ and his life ministry but obedience. They Y- yes. Yeah, and at some level, the a confession, a proper view, a proper confession of the Trinity, um, we would say is I'm trying to be careful here is <laughs> is necessary in a. In, in your understanding of the gospel. I think we could say that. So we would have to correct on any heretical views of the Trinity in our... But that's kind of going into the realm of apologetics, um, which is more of a defense of the faith, which is related to evangelism, but not specifically what we're talking about here. I think you have to just present... Uh, well, I think this is helpful for me to... to this is really important, so I don't want to just like brush this off.
but I do, I do think it might be more than the scope of the time we have for us today. So in future weeks, I definitely want to get back to, back to the, what is necessary, I guess would be the word, what is necessary in our gospel proclamation. Um, and I'm really sympathetic to a lot of what you're saying. I don't think a full defense of like the hypostatic union or uh, the inner workings of the eternal uh, relations of origin of the Trinity is necessary in a gospel proclamation. But there's also some things I'd want to push back on a little bit. But, yes. No, oh, everyone's, this is good. <laughs> reasonable. It, I would say it's the most reasonable, though. And even in human terms, it is the truth. It is a, it's coherent. It's a, that's kind of what Brad was saying. There's a, it's a, yeah. <laughs> Roxanne. I think a lot of that takes just personal wisdom, prayer. You know the situation better than any of us. You know her. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think how, how you phrase the first three, right? Like this is the gospel message of God, sin, Christ. It wouldn't hurt. I mean... Natural to that is, what is your response to this? And it doesn't have to be like, okay, today is the day you have to make the decision for Jesus. But just as you continue to disciple and work, continue bringing it up and just, how, how do you feel about this? What's your response to this? The different ways we witness or the different people we witness to, the, the morally good or the, the, the ones that believe themselves to be Christian. Um, or those that are uh, offended by the the charge that they are a sinner, which is very common, I think, in our day. All right, I'm going to move us on. Well, let me think about this. <laughs> um, we can keep talking. But my last section is really just about, uh, Packer has a section showing this in, basically the this, this, this same definition that I've been giving, but through the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. So it's really important because I don't want y'all to come here thinking, oh, this is a great thing Ryan got from all these books. This is, Marty's been really helpful here too. And this, this is coming directly from the pages of the New Testament, specifically when we look at the ministry of Paul him being a, a model for us as a evangelist to the Gentiles, as the one sent to the Gentiles. And now we see a, a Christ's commission he gives to us as the church to make disciples of all nations. So I think we can, although we do not have the same office or authority as the Apostle Paul, we do have the same mission. And even more amazingly, um, I'm trying to summarize a lot here. Even more amazingly, Paul would view himself as an ambassador, a herald, a servant of Christ. Ambassador being the, the designated representative of a sovereign, of a king. And we have that same claim on our lives. We are ambassadors of Christ in Christ. Which means, this comes back to what Bobby said, Paul viewed, it, had, viewed himself as the 
having the authority of Christ in his gospel proclamation, we have that very same authority when we communicate the words of truth, which I think should give us what? It should give us boldness. It should give us the, the comfort, the, the willingness to try to persuade. It's not like we have one option amongst several other good options. We have the option. We have the way, the truth. Um, so really, there's just a lot of great things, and it's going to be, I'm not going to have time to get through it all, but this book, it's gold. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. There's some in the library. Check it out today. Um, but his section on Paul um, in this book is super helpful. Any other? We can keep talking for another minute or two. Let me see what else I got here in the notes. Mm-hmm. Which that, that's, yeah, that's one aspect of the definition I, I probably should have added. All of this is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Word, the teaching of the Gospel is done through the Spirit in us, um, which again gives that confidence, content, like it's, yeah. It doesn't tell us that. That's right. Ahead of time. But he gives us the responsibility. <laughs> he does give us the responsibility. I'm trying to find where yeah. Paul talks about this. All right, we are officially out of time. <laughs> Y'all did good. That was a lot of, a lot more than I was expecting. So I'll have to prepare. Y'all like this topic. All right, next time, next time we might touch on some of this Paul stuff and do a, a, a history of evangelism. You're dismissed.